Fun fact, jogging used to be considered strange. In the 1960s, jogging wasn't correlated to health at all, nor was it commonplace behavior. But then Nike made the connection. They turned something that was feared and doubted into something that's part of the overall picture of our well-being. Today, you can't walk on the streets of any city or really anywhere without passing by someone who's on a run. Decades later, the rise of gyms, countless types of classes, and athleisure wear has made fitness something for everyone and, frankly, part of a lifestyle. Those changes, Nike's push to make jogging normal, the rise of gyms, the classes, the athleisure, they were driven by marketing. They were driven by companies that had a product that they thought could make people's lives better. 49% of individuals globally rate money as the top stressor in their lives. That's more stress than physical health, work, or family. What's most surprising, 57% of people aren't investing at all. So what's stressing them out and what can they do about it? On this episode of The Bid, we'll talk to BlackRock's Chief Marketing Officer, Frank Cooper. His career has been Pepsi, BuzzFeed, Def Jam, and today, financial services. We'll talk about why money should be part of our overall picture of well-being and how we can tackle making investing approachable one small step at a time. Frank, thank you so much for joining us today. So happy to be here. Your background before you came to BlackRock was in consumer, in entertainment, and well before that in law. Now that you've been here and you've been diving into this question of what gets more people investing around the world, what have you learned? Let me explain my background because it seems like a chasm between where I've been and where I am today, right? So consumer goods and, and technology and entertainment and now financial services. But there's a common denominator to all of it. In marketing, what we're trying to do is make change happen. We're trying to change people's perception and we're trying to change their behaviors. And that's what I've done my entire career. You can do that in food and beverage. You can do that in entertainment. You can do that in technology. Just applying that same discipline now here in financial services. And I feel like there's no better time than now to actually be in financial services because we're at a moment in time where people are starting to awaken to the fact that their relationship with their money is important to their overall sense of well-being. And what's been the catalyst for that change? Why now? If you look at just what's happening in culture, with institutions, it all's come together in a way that I think has led people to this place. Mindfulness overall has increased. People are much more conscious about what actually makes me happy and much more demanding about that. And we saw it happen in food, right, where people said, I need to understand how nutrition actually gives me greater energy and improves my sense of well-being. We saw it happen in physical exercise. And if you've ever been to Soul Cycle, or I've never been to these places, by the way, but, <laughs> but if you've been to Soul Cycle or Flywheel or Barry's Boot Camp, I know the names. I'm a big Barry's fan. Really? I have to say, really big Barry's fan twice a week. I hear incredible things happen in there. They uh, do. Uh, it's and, amazing. Uh, but people come out and they feel this greater sense of energy, but a heightened sense of well-being. So now, if that's the expectation that people have, is that I want things that actually contribute to my overall sense of well-being, if it doesn't, it's actually put into another category. It's put into the category of the mundane or a commodity, and they're not going to pay a premium for it. They're not going to pay attention to it. And what I believe is that we've artificially separated our relationship with money from our sense of well-being. 
And now we have that chance to bridge the gap. There's this deep sense that money actually contributes or can prevent you from achieving a certain level of well-being. But no one's really unpacked that because there's taboo around talking about money. There's a lack of clarity about what it means to earn your money and spend it and save it and borrow it and give it and invest it. There are all these barriers, cultural, social, familial, that actually prevent people from exploring that relationship and understanding how money contributes to their overall sense of well-being. That resonates with probably most people, but from where you sit, what can you do about it, right? We don't touch consumers. We're an investment firm. We're an asset management firm. We don't have a consumer brand. So much of what you mentioned feels deeply personal and about human behavior. So what levers do you have where you are to help drive that change? We're an input in the outcome, but how can we be a driver? You know, the way I think about any business in any industry is I start with a deep obsession about the customer, the end customer. Everything flows from that end customer. You, know, you think about when I worked at PepsiCo, and people often think of PepsiCo as a consumer brand only. But we don't go direct to consumers. We never did. But they see a Super Bowl commercial with Beyonce or a World Cup promotion with Messi, and it feels like it's a consumer brand. But what Pepsi did is they sold to retailers, an intermediary, that had the direct contact with a shopper. But if we didn't actually have the obsession with that end consumer, what makes them tick? What brands do they love? what enhances their sense of value, how do they perceive value in a product, then you could never actually provide value to the retailer. Same thing in financial services. Yes, we serve intermediaries, institutions, financial advisors, but ultimately, all of us are serving an end investor. We're serving a person at the end of the chain, and I like to work back from that. And if you can understand that person better, not only can you serve them better, but you can serve the intermediary better. And so I spend almost all of my time being obsessed with the end customer and working back from there. That end customer, as you said, cares more about the things in their life contributing to their sense of well-being. Where today does money and investing stack up? It sounds like you think there's a lot of room for improvement. Well, first, I'll say money is definitely not a panacea. Money is not the answer. I'm not here saying that you will find happiness (laughs) if you could only achieve a certain level of money. In fact, I think that's the wrong way to think about it. The thought is people need to reconcile their life goals with money. And I think the challenge for us as a society and for individuals within our society is to reconcile that across the full dimension of money. How do you earn your money? And people are talking about that all the time. And we're starting to crack the code on that. People are now demanding, I want something as I earn my money and I have my job. I want something that's fulfilling to me, that actually meets my own personal sense of purpose, my own sense of values. And Larry's letter to CEOs, both this year and the year before, which speaks to this idea of purpose in part It's driven by employees who are increasingly demanding that the companies for which they work actually serve some higher purpose and that meets their own personal sense of purpose. But it's also how people save their money and how they give it. It's easier to see it and how you spend it, right? Because that's Mm -hmm. the most visible thing. If I spend some money and suddenly I have, I don't buy this, but you have a Gucci belt or Gucci purse or whatever it might be, like, okay, I have this item. It's visible. I can enjoy it. Other people can enjoy it. It says something about me. When you save, you don't see it. So that becomes a more difficult thing for people to grasp. When you invest, oftentimes people don't see it. And so the opportunity I see now, though, is that as we look at technology and its ability to actually give people signals back for the things that were previously invisible. So if you save and there's something that happens on your mobile phone that indicates that you saved and gives you a signal that, well, isn't this Mm -hmm. a great thing? That's our opportunity now to start to send those signals in ways that enhance people's sense of accomplishment and to kind of nudge them toward the behaviors that we think would improve their relationship with money. 
And so investing, you would put in that category of positive signals to get people to invest. And the reason I ask is because so much research shows that actually the best investor outcome for sort of average consumer is to think very little about their investments and to just save, put it aside, and not think about it. So is what you're suggesting just a more dynamic relationship with what's happening, even if it's not an active set of choices that people are making? I'm suggesting that, but I'm also suggesting that we found this in our own global investor pulse. There's a large percentage of the population across the globe that just believe investing is not for them. It's too complicated. I don't have enough money. This is for a small elite group of people. It's not for me. And so the best way to actually transition from that belief is partly knowledge, but knowledge we found is not in and of itself an effective tool. You can do financial literacy all day and the percentage of people who actually shift their behavior is pretty small. It's really almost the Nike mantra of just do it. Um, Mm -hmm. We found that people who actually just invest something, it's not about the amount, that behavior in itself creates momentum, creates a sense of confidence, creates trust. And that's the behavior that kind of reinforces itself and allows them to become investors. The last thing is this. Some people may never even perceive themselves as investors. The image of an investor and the role models that they've seen in advertisements are far away from how many people perceive themselves. But that's okay. As long as they're doing the behaviors that we believe investors should, right? Are they actually contributing in a consistent way? Are they thinking long-term? Do they believe in the growth of the equity market? Are they balancing it in a way that meets their expectations? Are they developing a realistic retirement fund for themselves? To me, those are the behaviors that we want. They call themselves savers, Mm -hmm. investors, earners, believers, whatever they want to call themselves. But those are the behaviors that we want to instigate. Uh, A phrase that you've used internally at BlackRock and in a lot of your sort of public appearances is the importance of bringing well-being through wealth to more and more people. Wealth is a really controversial term, particularly in that more broad mainstream context. So how and why did you choose that? Not only just as it was your background as a lawyer and then your particular attention to language, I mean, that must have been a very deliberate choice. So how do you think about what wealth means today and what power you think it has to mean something different in the future? Yeah, I mean, I really wanted to reinforce this idea that wealth is not just for the wealthy. And so part of what I wanted to do is make a distinction between being wealthy, which oftentimes is perceived as a destination, which changes. And so when people say, when I just cross this threshold of net worth or investments, at that point, I'm wealthy. And then I can have some sense of relief. That goal keeps moving, number one. But even (laughs) if it didn't, even if it remained static, it excludes way too many people. And what I saw in coming into this industry is that wealth, this idea of your relationship with money, is really rooted more in a set of behaviors than it is in a particular destination. You know, are you saving? Are you spending in ways that are conscious? Are you conscious about what you're earning and what you're giving? Are you investing? And I wanted to use that term precisely because it was provocative. We could soften it, right? We could Mm -hmm. soften and say it's people's relationship with money and how that actually contributes to their well-being. But I think because that phrase is softer, it's easier for people to gloss over it. I want people to pause. But here's the interesting thing. The people who pause the most, the people who cringe the most are people in the industry. Because partly it's a term of art in the industry. When they say wealth management, they mean people who have investable assets over a certain amount. Cringe. They hear wealth, they think, oh, isn't that kind of alluding to the elitism and the inequality that may exist? And, you know, that term feels so loaded. You go outside into general culture, you get less of a sting. In fact, what you find is that the average person 
is unafraid of the term wealth. They just think it's inaccessible. And so for me, I saw it as an opportunity to define it for what it is. Wealth means a set of behaviors which allows you to move forward no matter where you stand. And so I love the term. It's provocative. It starts conversations. Being wealthy is different from acquiring more wealth. We've been talking about a lot of big themes, big consumer insights, and a few big picture ways that can change the way people feel about money and investing. We do this Global Investor Pulse once a year. This year's results show that people still feel a ton of stress when it comes to their personal finances. What actions would you hope to see in 2019 such that 2020's results might be a little different? One action I'd love to see is to demystify the language of financial services. Can we speak in a language in a way that is intuitive to people? And so I think having that more kind of intuitive, short form, easy to understand language is one step forward. Mm -hmm. Two, I'd love to make money part of the cultural conversation. It's been taboo. People don't want to talk about it. But increasingly, we're seeing parts of the population talk about it. One of my jobs I had before, I had a really young population of employees, really young. I think the average age was 24. And was it BuzzFeed? Yes, it was BuzzFeed. Okay. And what I noticed is they were very open in talking about money, very open. They shared salary information with each other. They talked about money and renting in a way that I had not seen for other generations. And so I'm encouraged by this idea that money can become part of the cultural conversation. The third thing is, I think, in our advertising we need more relatable role models. What we know about this whole idea of self-efficacy, of people advancing, whether it's in sports or money or anything, actually, seeing relatable role models actually makes you feel like, I can do it. Mm -hmm. So suddenly, this notion that investing is not for me is diminished significantly because I see someone who is like me actually doing it. Then the last piece is this, is technology. Are there ways in which people can start to advance through small steps mostly through technology, by leveraging the knowledge and expertise that we have, but doing it in a way that makes it easy and comfortable for them. Small steps are meaningful steps. Demystifying financial services is an important step, but there also are persistent concerns about whether the public trusts financial services and trusts our industry in the wake of the financial crisis, even though it was 10 years ago. We're now looking at a sort of crisis of trust in technology. How important do you think trust in institutions is is in driving some of that change? And the reason I ask is all the things you mentioned could be driven outside financial services, actually, right? You can have some of those role models. You can sort of change the conversation through popular culture and not as much have sort of the existing financial services institutions lead the way. So my question is, where do you think we are in terms of public trust and financial services, and how important is that in driving these changes? Yeah, well, first, this whole decline of trust in institutions is a broad theme that's been happening for at least the past 30 years, arguably the past 40 years. And it's been consistent. Look at any poll. You can look at the Edelman Trust Barometer. You can look at the Gallup polls. They're all saying the same thing, that there's a declining trust in institutions. It's accelerated recently. It's accelerated on a global scale because we've seen the Panama Papers. We've seen the Tesco meat scandal. We've seen the global financial crisis. If you look at where trust sits today, it sits on platforms that allow people like us, ordinary people, to kind of be the checkers of truth, right? So you'll sit on a platform like an Uber or Airbnb, Airbnb. and you're effectively saying, I actually trust the stranger more than I trust an institution because I believe that the stranger has less motivation to do me wrong. And that's what we're seeing over and over and over. Meanwhile, 
the institutions that we've seen over the years, people believe that their motivations have not been aligned with the customer, mm-hmm. not have been aligned with society at large. And you get to financial services, it gets even more acute. Financial services tends to be at the bottom of the trust surveys along with journalism. And it's in part, I think, because there's the truth that financial services industries, particularly asset management and investment management, have been perceived as serving a small percentage of the population. And that perception is hard to overcome, in part because there's a segment of the industry that absolutely does that. But there are other segments of the industry that serves the ordinary person. We just don't talk about it much. The fact that we have at BlackRock, for example, two-thirds of our assets under management relate to retirement. This is retirement for teachers and nurses and firefighters and policemen. But we don't really talk about that, and people don't perceive it in that way. They look at a narrow slice of what we do. And I think the industry has done it to itself. And I think we have an opportunity now to be a lot more transparent about the full range of what we do. Because I think there's a lot of good in what we do, but we need to share it. But we also need to be honest about the areas in which we can do better. Mm -hmm. So for us, what I'm excited about is that we now stand in a place where we have this opportunity to help more people. That this idea of financial inclusion can be a reality. That our expertise can help people beyond just our clients. And I think it stems from really the reason why we exist as a firm mm-hmm. is to do that, is to help more and more people kind of build their worth, both financially and their sense of self-worth. I want to end with a rapid fire round, but I'm going to ask one personal question before I do that. <laughs> That's scary. Especially when it's about money. Yeah. Is there a moment you can think of, a decision you made, a realization, good or bad incident that changed your relationship with money? So when I came out of law school, I clerked for a judge. And what I learned is I got out of law school first week before I was going to go in to start working for the judge. I loaned a friend a significant amount of money, which I never got paid back. But, uh, <laughs> How uh, long had you known this friend? For a long time, all my life. Okay. You know, at that time, 20-some-odd years. And then when I went into work, I realized that my paycheck was going to come like a month later because of the way the pay cycle worked. And for me, that was a hard lesson because at that point— I was committed to the idea that I never want to be in a position where I have not thought through personal cash flow and savings and how I actually manage my own money against all the things I want to do. And so after that point, I was much less impulsive, much more (laughs) thoughtful about how I handled money. The interesting thing is it didn't make me, I hope, more stingy. It just made me more thoughtful about how all these things relate together. And do you find that as you learn more about financial services, about investing, your own behavior changed? I'm more conscious of how money works and how investments work. Yeah, it's changed my behavior. It's also changed even how I discuss money with other people, family members, for example. You know, at first, I was talking about it in more technical terms because I was picking up the jargon here. Right. But now, actually, I've gotten to a point where I can actually translate that in ways that are easier for family members and friends to understand. And so, I mean, I don't go around every night preaching about, you know, <laughs> what are you doing with your money? You know, like, how's right. your wealth? Yeah, I'm <laughs> no asking that. But I've found that I can actually be more helpful with people who are close to me in explaining how they might actually take a step forward to have greater financial stability. I want to end with a rapid fire round. Yep. Departure from everything we've been talking about. Yeah. As we've mentioned, your background goes well beyond the world of BlackRock and investing from Harvard Law School to Def Jam to Pepsi, BuzzFeed. So I'm going to ask you a series of this or that questions. Ready? Okay, let's go. Kanye or Drake? 
Kanye or Drake? That's a tough one, but I have to go Kanye. And I have to go Kanye. I have a deep bias because uh, I've worked with Kanye and worked extensively with Kanye. And I have not worked as closely with Drake. But even if that were not true, I'm still (laughs) going to be a Kanye person on that front because I feel like he's actually changed music in a much more fundamental way, bringing in samples from jazz, using voice in a way that actually had never been used before. If you listen to a Kanye song, he's layering voices and different types of voices throughout the song, but also opening the way for people like Chance the Rapper and Kendrick Lamar by making the lyrical content of rap a little bit more thoughtful and more expansive beyond just kind of money and cars. Love that you say you haven't worked with Drake as much as opposed to (laughs) not at all. So another one, now that you're not on their payroll anymore, Coke or Pepsi? Oh, it's definitely Pepsi. It's like, no oh, question. come on. No, it's no question. I mean, you guys don't remember the Pepsi challenge? It's like, just do a blind taste test, and you'll find out which one is better. BuzzFeed Tasty or the Try Guys? That's the easy one, too. Tasty, all the way. I'm not even a foodie, and I certainly don't cook, but I'm mesmerized by Tasty Video. You know, it's just one, it's, <laughs> it's like 45 seconds to one minute from a first-person point of view in a hyperlapse video, and you see it from the first ingredient to the final product. It's just something about that. It's almost like meditative in a way. And so tasty all the way. And love the Try Guys, but tasty. Okay. Frank, thank you for sharing your insights with us today. It's been a pleasure having you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Interested in seeing more of the numbers behind our Global Investor Pulse? Visit BlackRock.com slash Investor Pulse to learn more about the largest ever study conducted on wealth and well-being. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. Investment involves risk, including possible loss of principal. In the U.S., this material is intended for public distribution. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc., All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.